0: Ben, our assistant pastor, you might have detected in his prayer. One thing that he prayed was that the Lord would bless us with having joy together. And uh, that's where we left off last week in God's word in the book of Nehemiah. As we're walking through that together near the end of chapter 12, the penultimate chapter, uh, you might remember it says they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. A Wonderful note of joy. And the good news is we'll continue in that theme of joy, particularly starting next week with the book of Philippians, the epistle uh, of joy series I'll call Choose Joy. So that's the fun and exciting news. And I would love it if the book of Nehemiah ended right there, chapter 12, verse 43. Um, However, it continues. And we've got chapter 13 to contend with today. And as I spend time in God's word, I don't know about you, but sometimes I spend time in God's word. And I think, Lord, what hast thou to say to thy servant? And sometimes I'm not sure at first blush. At first reading, when you read chapter 13, sometimes it can seem like, what do we do with this? How do we make a sermon out of this? Whether I spend time in it and let the word of God wash over my soul, I think, man, this is worth three sermons. I've just got one. So here we go with Nehemiah chapter 13, and just kind of by way of brief review, as we finally reach the end of the book. We've seen that Nehemiah hears of the need of Jerusalem and he prays like crazy and he receives permission to go back and he goes and he rallies the troops and they they overcome opposition and they rebuild the wall in record time, 52 days. It had laid there in rubble and ruins for years and he helps lead a revival and then they organize a celebration. And that's where we left off last week. But what happens next is he is, after a dozen years as governor in his first term there, he's recalled on the king's business, goes back to Persia, and as we'll see, things begin to unravel quite quickly in his absence. So in Nehemiah chapter 13, I have provided uh, the entire text for you. I think what I'm going to do in the interest of time is right now we'll read the first 14 verses and pray, and we'll talk about it and proceed on from there. Nehemiah chapter 13. Here come the first 14 verses. On that day, which actually is some... Years later, On that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Verse 6. While this was taking place, I, that is Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem, For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found that out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, we would say yet again, what hast thou to say to thy servants? Um, Make our ears attentive. Give us ears to hear by your Holy Spirit that we might understand, that we might believe the gospel, that we might worship you, and that we might walk with you in new obedience and gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. While the cat's away, you know what happens. So uh, verse 11 shows that after his period of time away, which we don't know exactly how long, estimates from scholars range from usually about three to seven years. So Nehemiah had come back. He had set things in order. um, They had made real progress. They had had a celebration to tie a bow on all of it. And then he goes back to Persia for three years, five years, seven years, something like that. He returns to Jerusalem, and he finds that people are backsliding, and things are falling apart. And folks are not following through on the promises that they had made to the Lord. Nehemiah 9, 38, a binding agreement. They put their hand to. They made a contract with God. Chapter 10, verse 39, they pledged to not neglect the house of God. Well, that's fallen by the wayside. You might might have even picked one of these up. There's a few left on that back back table back there. This document on covenant renewal, I said, was between you and the Lord, if you find it helpful to you and encouragement. And it talks about different areas of life, family life, professional life, and commitment to the local church. Well, basically, what had happened in the time that he left and, and returned, it, it, just, it just didn't matter. Folks were not doing what they said they would do. And so we'll see here what happens is restoration of the temple and offerings because Nehemiah is a man of action. He's also a man of prayer. He's a man of action. In a man of prayer. We're going to see the restoration of the temple. Restoration of the Sabbath. And restoration of the Shema. If you don't know the word Shema. That, that comes from Deuteronomy 6. Hear O Israel the Lord thy God. Is one Lord. Restoration of the temple. And offerings. And in restoring things. And Nehemiah for a second time around. Setting in order the things that remain. Some things are displaced. Some people are displaced. Tobiah, the Ammonite, one of the enemies of God's people, not only historically but personally, enemy of God's people, and yet there was intermarriage even with the family of the high priest, eliaship And so when he gets back, he brings people back to God's word. they're spending time in numbers 22 remember that story about the talking donkey? I don't i don't mean for those of you old enough to remember Mr. Ed or, or Francis or anything like that, but in the scriptures, Numbers chapter 22, and they're probably spending time in Deuteronomy chapter 23, and Nehemiah is filled with righteous anger. He says he is very angry. We'll get to, we'll, we'll deal with some of this in a, in a little bit. Some of it sounds rather strange to our ears at first blush reading, but I think we can make some sense out of it. So Tobiah, who we had seen earlier in the book, and I'd urge you, maybe now that we're through with the series, don't just forget about Nehemiah, but read it. Read it by itself. Thirteen chapters, right? Read Ezra and Nehemiah together. You know, spend half an hour. Read through it. Give it kind of the bird's eye view and see if that helps you make heads and tails out of it. But Tobiah was one of those who was opposed to this rebuilding effort. And now he has taken up lodging in the house of God. One commentator notes, because Israel had refused to be ruled by Yahweh, an Ammonite thug was ruling them. He's taken up lodging in the house of God. By the way, the reason that there was room for Tobiah to have a residence in the storehouse of the temple of the living god is because it was empty because God's people had stopped giving and this intermarriage with family members connected to Eliashib so Nehemiah confronts he reprimands he holds to account the officials the leading citizens the folks who not that many years before had made this covenant with the Lord saying, we'll do this and we'll do this and we'll do this. And he he brings them up short. He calls them on the carpet. The Levites, the assistants in temple worship, they'd gone back to subsistence farming because the the tithes and offerings weren't coming in. You got to eat. You got to feed your family. So they go back. Verse 10 Nehemiah holds these leaders accountable and, and sets faithful men in place. It's kind of a throw the bums out sort of thing that goes on here from Nehemiah. It's, it, it's eviction. It's a set out. Can you imagine Tobiah's response? Nehemiah, by, by this time, his age, probably he's in his 60s. By the way, Tobiah might have even been older and his personal belongings are are tossed out unceremoniously out of the house of the Lord. Nehemiah doesn't mess around. We've got restoration of the temple and of the offerings, and Tobiah is displaced. Well, the second point with restoration of the Sabbath is that the merchants are displaced. And in the interest of time today, I'm not going to read verses 15 through 22, But I think you ought to give it a reading yourself. In verse 18, I would comment and say that Nehemiah talks about God's judgment has come upon them. Twice it says in this passage uh, that they have profaned, they are polluting or defiling the house of the Lord. And God's judgment, his burning anger, his disaster has been brought upon them in the past and now again. And you'll see in verses 15 through 22, when you read it, you'll see that Nehemiah takes very specific and practical actions in closing the gates, giving instructions, who is to do that, putting the faithful men in charge, what time to do it, warning those who are not trusting the Lord, who are just looking to work 24-7 and who are greedy for gain and profit all the time. He warned them off more than once. Also in verses 15 through 22, at the end of that section, in verse 22, we have adumbrations of the gospel. We have another short, pithy prayer from our leader, Nehemiah. He says, spare me, O Lord, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, your loving kindness. Again, that is God's covenant love, his special redeeming love for his people. And he asks God to spare him, to have pity on him to have compassion on him because he is seeking to be faithful to God's covenant. And that's adumbrations of the gospel. That's how we pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Restoration of the Sabbath, the merchants are displaced. It's very significant. We've touched on it previously. It was an issue earlier for Nehemiah. It was an issue in Ezra's day as well. And then you've got restoration of Shema, that the Lord alone is to be worshipped in accordance with the word of God. Remember, they've returned to the word. They're they're reading the scriptures again. Numbers 22, Deuteronomy 23. And they're being reminded that they cannot have idols. They cannot serve other gods, the gods of the people of the lands. But the Lord and him only shall they worship. And so the foreign gods are displaced. Tobiah is displaced. The merchants are displaced. The foreign gods are displaced. So let's read again in verses 23 through 31. And the way that I've laid it out for you, kind of paragraph form, it's the final paragraph on your sermon outline. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah. Just an aside right there, what language is that? Hebrew. Temple worship was to be conducted in Hebrew and he finds that the kids, you know, they're not passing it on to the next generation as they are supposed to but only the language of each people. Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now we're going to talk about this, just hang on. It sounds strange at first blush, we'll make sense of it. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. You'll remember Sanbalat also from earlier in the book, one of those who opposed Nehemiah early on. Therefore I chased them from me. Verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. That's restitution, right? That's setting things back in order. And then one of these little flare prayers, remember me, oh my God, for good. And that's how the book closes. Remember me, oh my God, for good. So we've got restoration of the Shema, and, and he refers to King Solomon, verse 26, an argument from lesser to greater. Now, What, what are you guys doing here? Hold the horses. Hang, hang on. What's going on here? We've already talked about this. We've already addressed this, and so did my predecessor Ezra in, in his day, uh, a dozen years ago. Well, at this point, 20 years earlier, don't y'all remember this stuff? Y'all ought not be doing this. My goodness, don't you remember King Solomon himself, how he fouled up in his life? By the way, a quick aside on King Solomon. I think the scriptures provide for us sort of a three-part biography on King Solomon. His, His asking for wisdom and his humility and his his rise to greatness and the blessing of the Lord and his riches and his wealth, kind of phase one of his life. Phase two is what Nehemiah refers to right here. He has trouble with women. If his daddy had trouble with women, he took it to a whole new level. Hundreds and hundreds of women. And the problem with this was that even Solomon, reputedly the wisest man on the face of the earth, Got engaged in syncretism? Oh, yes, paying lip service uh, homage to the Lord and serving foreign gods? Canaanite fertility gods? Lowercase g who are no gods at all? Solomon? And then phase three of Solomon's life, I believe, reflected in perhaps uh, some of the Proverbs and particularly the book of Ecclesiastes where he comes to his senses, where as an older man he returns to the Lord and shares life lessons learned from having gone astray and lived apart from God and talks how to live in the presence of God instead. So here Nehemiah makes an appeal to King Solomon. Even him, if even he fell, the wisest man who ever lived, who do you think you are? What what do you all think y'all are doing? And so he speaks about intermarriage as treachery. Verse 27, treachery against God. This is about idolatry, not ethnicity. Remember, there was always room in Israel for the sojourner, for the foreigner. Ruth was a Moabite, right? Ruth the Moabites. But she left her foreign gods. What does she say to her mother-in-law, Naomi? Wherever thou goest, I will go. Your people will be my people, and what else? And your God, my God. She will serve the Lord and him only. It isn't about ancestry or ethnicity so much as it is a religious matter. It's a spiritual matter, not a physical one. It's about the people being unfaithful to the Lord, lack of covenant fidelity, and not only the, the, the common people, if you will, but the priesthood has been desecrated, verse 29, by this intermarriage. An unusual word is used here in the original language. They, they've defiled themselves. So let's, before we move on, let's talk about his use of force, corporal punishment. Verse 25, when we read it, it sounds very strange. Hair pulling? What's going on here? Is this a cat fight between teenage girls? No, it's not. He's angry, and he should be angry. This is righteous indignation. Now, you know Christians are very leery about angry, about anger sometimes. Why? I think because with James we recognize that it usually the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God, that we get angry about the wrong things. But there is righteous anger as well. J.I. Packer says, if we cannot feel anger at sin, there's something wrong with us. And if we would be more angry at sin, we should be less indulgent towards it. There are some things that ought to get your dander up. Some things that the thing that you're doing is not good. We saw earlier in Nehemiah. And it ought to make you angry. But let's explain this a little bit. Hair pulling. Uh, now, if you remember back in Ezra, Ezra pulled his own hair. It's interesting. There's a lot of commonalities that Ezra and Nehemiah have as leaders, but there's some contrasts as well. In Ezra chapter 9, Ezra pulls out his own hair. He's, he's so grieved at the people's sin. And he... Takes various actions, and that's one you can imagine him pulling out a tuft of hair by the roots, and he's just, he's so upset. So what's going on here? Use of physical force? We didn't read it, but in verse 21, he warns off those merchants, and he says, if y'all come back here, I'll lay hands on you. And he's not talking about ordination or prayer. And he chased another fellow off, verse 28 the grandson of the high priest who was in line to become a priest himself one day and he had married a foreign wife its religious apostasy and and being chasing that guy off would be similar to what we do still in the church today not physically but with excommunication with casting the unbeliever, out. But when we read this, at first blush, I think we can think, well, this dude was in a tizzy, man. He's pulling people's hair. He's running around chasing. You know, what's going on here? Well, here's how I think we can make some sense out of it. It also says that he cursed them. Verse 25 confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. We've got to attend to this before we move on. Cursed them. Does that mean he called them names and cussed? No. He, He called down God's word of judgment upon them. He was reminding them of what they had been doing, spending time in the book of Deuteronomy, particularly chapters 27 through 30. There's a homework assignment for you. Read Deuteronomy 27 through 30. Give it a good reading. It won't take that long. And it'll may not pull your hair out, but it'll curl your hair. He's reminding them of the covenant blessings from God and the covenant curses. That's what it means that he cursed them. The use of physical force, the hair pulling. He's acting, Nehemiah is acting in his capacity as a royal official. He's acting as judge of Israel in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 25. And the hair pulling, I mean, we might imagine that he ran after people and chased them down and did it himself. But no, no, this was was done carefully, publicly, calling these leaders to account. It was head shaving as a sign of public humiliation which we see several places in the Old Testament, one of which is 2 Samuel 10. It's what one commentator calls a public shaming ritual. It's formal discipline. In other words, he's not just flying off the handle and in a rage running around, but he most definitely is calling the people of God to account, starting with the officials, the leaders, and the priests. And he's not playing games. The good news of the gospel for you and for me is that Christ has borne the shame of our sin through becoming a curse for us in his death on the tree, on the cross. What a foreign thing that must have been for him. He who knew no sin became the very essence of sin on our behalf that we might be restored to right standing with God through him. Paid for our shame. Restoration of the temple, restoration of the Sabbath, restoration of the law of God and the worship of the Lord of glory alone. And in, in the process, some things get displaced. Tobiah, the merchants, idols. As we continue on, letter B in your outline to New Testament elaborations and applications. Again, I've got a bunch of cross-references listed. I'm going to just talk about most of them. We'll look up two. The book of Nehemiah concludes with what it's mentioned over and over: a call to holiness. Holiness, holiness is separation unto the Lord. And yes, there is exclusion. There is exclusion of some people and some things and some practices. There is exclusion. There is division for the purpose of being dedicated, devoted, consecrated to the Lord and his service, him and him only. We see this in Ezra 6 and Ezra 9 and Ezra 10. We saw this in Nehemiah chapter 9, as well as here in verse uh, chapter 13. We see this also in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6. I'll read verses 14 through 18 for us. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers or what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And yet, in Nehemiah's day, a syncretist, somebody who mixed religions, was living in the temple. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Separation, exclusion, for good reason. To serve the Lord, the one true living God in him only. And to have that privilege of adoption as sons, of of sonship, being sons and daughters of God most high. It's a beautiful thing. We are the temple of the living God. Second, we have temple cleansing. Throw the bones out. Displacement of Tobiah. Throw out his furniture and cleanse the place. Fumigate it. A little reminiscent of someone else we know, John chapter 2, our Lord Jesus himself. John 2, early in his ministry, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build or rebuild this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Temple cleansing. Temple cleansing. Some people think that maybe Jesus lost control of his faculties, that he flew off the handle into a fit of rage. No. He made a whip of cords. He braided a whip of cords. This was thoughtful, this was deliberate, and it was planned. Just as Nehemiah didn't run around chasing people down, but it was a public shaming event to hold the leaders to account, to worship the Lord and him only. That's what Jesus is doing here too. It was premeditated. And of course, we have the gospel here. Destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. 2 Corinthians 6 instructs us, we are the temple of the living God. John 2 tells us that Jesus is the final temple. He's the final temple. And there's temple cleansing. The royal governor, Nehemiah, had to give religious orders in in our chapter today, chapter 13, for cleansing and restoration of the grain offerings and use frankincense and all that. So we need to think about this holiness, temple cleansing. And third and last, remembrance by God. Remembrance by God. Four times in our passage, three times for good, once for judgment. I put it in bold. If you look at your sermon outline, make it stand out. Verses 14, 22, and 31. Remember my good work. So Nehemiah 13 has an intensely personal tone. If you read it again, I'm not going to do it, but if you read it again, there's over and over use of the first person. I found out this, I did that. As a leader, he takes definitive action in this situation. What we've also got here is short-form prayer. Remember me. Remember me. Oh, my God. Nehemiah is a man of action. He's also a man of prayer. We've seen it all along, repeatedly. We talked about long-form prayer early on, chapters 1 and 2. But we talked about short-form prayer as well. And that's what these prayers serve as here. And when he says, Remember me for all the good things that I've done, this isn't salvation by works. He is entreating the favor of God, God's favor, God's grace. Remember me. Remember me. On the church Facebook page this morning, I posted uh, Andrew Peterson's song. Called Remember Me. It's, it's a wonderful song. You ought to go there and listen to it. Jesus says, Remember me, remember? Or, or, or no, I, actually, he was in conversation with someone who asked the Lord similarly to remember him in Luke 23. Remember the thief on the cross? This man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Listen to the song by Andrew Peterson about it. And what is Jesus' response, of course? Today you will be with me in paradise. In Acts 10, that's the story of the first Gentiles coming into Christ, Cornelius. And it says that his prayers and alms had ascended as a memorial before God, that that God remembered his faith towards the Lord. This isn't salvation by works. This is salvation by grace. It also tells us that God remembers his own in a good way. Hebrews 6.10 says the same sort of thing. For God is not unjust so as to forget your love and the work that you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God doesn't forget his people. God doesn't forget his own, and that is what Nehemiah was counting on here. We're going to talk more about remembrance when we come to the table in just a few moments, but I'm going to close the the message here for now. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, you are God alone. Remember us when you come into your kingdom. Through Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. All right.